You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about our church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Acts 6, we are continuing on in our series, The World Turned Upside Down, which is our journey through the book of Acts. Um, And today, in particular, uh, we'll be looking at the life of Stephen. And the story of Stephen is quite lengthy, so I'm not going to read it. Normally, as you know, our practice is I read the text, then I preach the text. But we're talking about half of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7. And by the way, chapter 7 is pretty long. Um, I thought about dividing it up. Um, However, I just felt like uh, this particular sermon, this particular text... Uh, needs to stay intact. Uh, that wasn't the case for a couple uh, sermons that we, that we saw Peter preaching, where I kind of chopped it up and we kind of looked at different elements. I think with Stephen, it was best to kind of keep it all together. And I say it's lengthy because it's you know 1,500 words, just to give you an idea. This is the text. Uh, keep turning the page. Keep turning the page. If you've got your Bible, you're seeing it. Uh, for contrast, my sermons are 4,000 words. So this, this, Stephen's sermon is, is quite lengthy but rich and powerful. Stephen's life, um, his sermon, and death caused me to ask an interesting question. If you could plan it, what would you say right before you die? If you could plan it, right? What would you say right before you die? What would you verbalize? What would come out of your mouth? In terms of this earthly existence, you know, we will die. We don't like to talk about it in such stark terms. We will die. The question has been pressed upon my heart this last week while studying about the life and death of Stephen. It's a question that I now want you to wrestle with. As I preach, wrestle with that question. What would you say before you die? Let me tell you about um, one man's last words. Of uh, all the modern day pastors who've had an effect on on my life, perhaps none has had a more significant effect on me than Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, In a moment, I'll tell you his last words. If you don't know him, that's okay. I'll just take a minute to tell you about him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a a German pastor, a Lutheran German pastor, who lived during World War II. As uh, Nazism was on the rise in Germany, a a minority of Christians were active in pushing against the the repressive regime. Bonhoeffer was a part of what is called the Confessing Church, a group of people who secretly fought against Nazism but confessed Christ, devout Christians. By many accounts, Bonhoeffer had one of the most brilliant minds in all of Germany. He's he's that guy who could have been whatever he wanted to be. Just put your mind to it. It was was quite a letdown when he he told his mom and dad he was going to be a pastor and not like a lawyer. He was brilliant. By the age of 21, he had written his first dissertation and doctorate called On the Church, A couple years later, he wrote a second dissertation, received a second doctorate. Brilliant man. If you haven't read his stuff, I recommend it to you. 
Well, as I said, he took exception with Adolf Hitler in Nazi Germany. And it would only be a matter of time before Bonhoeffer and his friends would be thrown into prison and then into a Nazi concentration camp. On April 5th, 1943, Bonhoeffer was finally imprisoned at Tegel. While in prison, Bonhoeffer's books were placed on a ban list, and he lost his teaching post at the University of Berlin. For several years, Bonhoeffer endured Nazi concentration. Here's how one professor, a modern-day, right-now professor living, Stephen Nicholas, describes Bonhoeffer's last few months. On February 7th, 1945, the day after he turned 39, for context, I'm 38. Turned 39, he was transferred from his cellar prison in Berlin to, I'm going to butcher the German here, Butchenwald, okay, correct me later, and then to Regensburg, and then on April 8th to Flossenburg. He was not alone, joined by other political prisoners He would preach sermons to them while they were in the back of military trucks, chained and jostling around. He would preach in the barracks as they lay on their cots, as they gathered around this thoughtful, soft-spoken, academic theologian in his wired-rimmed spectacles. On April 9th, 1945, only 74 years ago, one day before Hitler died, One day before Hitler died, Bonhoeffer was murdered. Those who were with Bonhoeffer recorded him saying, this is the end for me, the beginning of life. I get chills saying it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer reminds me, to some extent, to Stephen that we read about in Acts. Now, this sermon isn't about Bonhoeffer or Stephen, but it's about the one they served. It's about how a person's last words can have lasting effect. The sermon is about how earthly persecution can reveal heavenly glory. Persecution. I don't think we understand what it means to be persecuted like Stephen or Bonhoeffer for that matter. I know we didn't read the passage for today. I sent an email, asked you to read it ahead of time because it is quite lengthy. But I want to jump ahead to the end of the story of Stephen. So here's Acts 7, verses 57 and 58. Here's the end of the story. Then I'll circle back. But they, and the they in this particular passage right here is the religious Jewish leaders. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. So they were hearing something they don't like. They stopped their ears and they rushed at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. This is how Stephen understood persecution. Let me to add a bit of color to Stephen's death. After he was kicked out of the city, he was likely thrown into a ditch. They'd get him out of the city, find a ditch, toss him in. 
As he lay in the ditch, some of the Jews would have taken off their shirts. Why? So that they could have better range of motion as they chucked rocks at him. And naturally, if you're going to stone somebody, you're not picking up pebbles. You're picking up the biggest rock you know that you can pick up that will have and result in the most damage. The bigger the better. And one by one, rocks were hurled at Stephen. A rock smashed against his stomach, his groin, his limbs, his head. And with each rock that landed on Stephen, the path toward death was ensured. The persecution was slow and painful. What I've described or tried to describe is how Stephen would have understood persecution. How did Stephen get to the point where he was kicked out of Jerusalem and then stoned to death? What necessitated a bunch of Jews to break their own law? They were breaking their own law to murder a man. Stephen acted like a Christian. He acted like a Christian. So here's a quick biographical sketch of Stephen, and then I want to show you what he said, which resulted in his death. His name popped up last week when we looked at the genesis of the diaconate, the office of the deacon. Stephen is one of the seven, uh, chosen by the church, then affirmed by the apostles to serve a group of widows who are not receiving the equal distribution of food, right? Remember that from last week. Seven people were named, including Stephen. But what's unique about Stephen is that we're actually told a little bit about him. We just didn't get a name. We got some characteristics. It says in Acts 6, verse 5, Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. So, we know he was thought well by the church. Verse 8 of Acts 6 also tells us Stephen is full of grace and power. Full of grace and power. The attributes of grace and power are used to describe Stephen because to some extent, he was following the example of Peter. Now, here's what I mean. Just as we saw with Peter in Acts 3, Acts 4, Acts 5, Stephen was following a similar pattern. God was using him to do signs and wonders, and then he was preaching the gospel. One interesting note regarding the mention of Stephen doing signs and wonders is that he was not one of the original apostles. Nonetheless, God did use, and I think still uses, non-apostles to perform signs and wonders. Verse 8, this little tidbit aside, the way Stephen is described is how we should want to be defined. As Stephen follows Christ, we should look at Stephen as an example. He was a man full of grace. He understood the grace of God to save his life, and he understood how to live a gracious life. He was a man who lived in the power that God gave him through the Holy Spirit. He was a man who spoke wisdom. I mean, like, have you ever met someone who speaks wisdom? What happens? You like, you know to be quiet. When that one guy or gal speaks up, you're like, okay, time out. I run my mouth a lot, but right now, and I'm talking about myself, really. I know how to run my mouth. 
when that person talks, I'm going to be quiet and listen because that person's full of wisdom. Stephen was that man. He was that man who, when he spoke, everyone was quiet and they listened. Even his opponents were amazed by the spirit-filled oratory skills of Stephen. Look at what is recorded in verse 10 of chapter 7. Excuse me, chapter 6. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit in which he was speaking. It's like, he keeps talking. Like, what do we do with this? So Stephen's life is about faith-filled service to the church. Think last week. It's also about faith-filled courage to live his life in this hostile context. He was a man of humility, like he served widows, right? He was a man of humility. Yeah, I'll go serve. But he's also a man of conviction. He preached truth to the religious Jews. And it's his faith-filled courage to speak the truth that would get him killed. So the question is, what did he say? And why did his hearers take exception to what he said? What's the big deal here? Even though Stephen was a, what appears to be a marvelous orator, there did come a point where enough was enough. Even if you are listening to the most elegant speaker, if he or she is speaking against your values and convictions, you can become frustrated or upset by what you're hearing. I mean, what's the greatest example of this? Politics, right? You can, hear, you can hear a politician speak well, but if it starts speaking against your particular values, you're like, uh-uh, I'm done. I don't care how elegant you are in your speech. And sometimes that even causes a visceral reaction in people. Like, you get really emotional about it. In the case of Stephen, his hearers were getting so upset that they plotted to put an end to his antics. In verse 13, it says, false witnesses were gathered. Think about it. False witnesses were gathered to speak against Stephen. Now, admittedly, this should sound familiar, right? This should sound really familiar. Do you remember what the religious leaders did to Jesus? Here's what happened to Jesus in Matthew 26. I'll just give you a, a summary as a reminder. The religious leaders were getting tired of everyone talking about Jesus, right? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. So they finally moved on Jesus by paying Judas 30 pieces of silver, right? Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin and he was questioned. This was the got you moment. It was basically trial at church. However, the trial was rigged. The trial was rigged. The religious leaders set forth false witnesses to speak against Jesus. Matthew 26, verse 59. It was this trial, which, with the trumped-up charges, that ultimately led to his death. The same thing happened to Stephen. It was all rigged from the beginning. But this is how persecution can work, right? It's all rigged. There were two charges leveled against Stephen. The same charges were leveled against Jesus. First, Stephen was accused of speaking against the law. Second, he was charged with saying the temple was going to be destroyed. He was basically repeating what Jesus said during his earthly ministry. Jesus said the temple was going to be destroyed, and in three days it would be raised. He was, of course, speaking metaphorically about his life. 
And Jesus also said that he is the fulfillment of the law. Think Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 17. Now, it, it can be a little difficult to get our minds around how the Jews felt when they heard that their understanding of the law and the temple were wrong, right? We don't live in that context. We don't quite get that. It would be like me saying to a, like a proud American, like they got, they got their flag on everything or whatever, and that's fine, saying to a proud American that your U.S. Constitution is worthless and your democracy is pointless. You say that <laughs> to the wrong person, <laughs> there is going to be a response. If you say those things to the wrong person, you will see, receive considerable, and I'm throwing in a new term, shade. That's what the kids are using. Whatever. Those statements to the wrong person can cause a visceral reaction. So Stephen was repeating everything Jesus said. However, before massive stones were hurled at him, Stephen had one more opportunity to preach. In Acts 7, Stephen had one message to send to his persecutors. Here it is, and then I'll explain it. Here's the message. Just as we can see from history how and when Israel missed what God was doing, Israel continues to miss what God is doing through Christ. I think Stephen's emphasis is still relevant today. Jews are missing what God is doing. Non-Jews are missing what God is doing. And it's tragic when someone misses what God is doing, what he has done. The consequences are temporal and eternal separation from God. Here's how Stephen preaches to the Jews. Here's how Stephen tries to show them that they've missed it. Once again, we go to the Old Testament. Stephen begins in a familiar place in the book of Genesis in the story of Abraham. So if you're reading Acts 7, that's kind of where he begins. He's going to talk about Abraham. Stephen reminds us and his hearers at the time of the promises of God and where his promises are headed. God had chosen Israel to be a blessing to the nations, but God required Israel to, to do two things. This is what I need you to do. I'm going I'm to bless you guys. You're going to bless the nations. Two things I, need to do, I want you to do. I want you to stop worshiping idols. Okay? Stop doing that. Worship me, the one true God, and obey. Those two things. As you turn the page in Genesis, you realize the rich history of Israel. we got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all mentioned in Stephen's sermon and are held up as fathers of Israel. But then Stephen goes out of his way to say that Jacob's son, Joseph, was not treated well by the patriarchs. He was sold into slavery. Why is he talking about this? Stephen reminds his persecutors and us of these historical facts. Look at Acts 7, verses 9 and 10. And the patriarchs, which, by the way, those were Joseph's brothers. The patriarchs, Joseph's brothers, his biological brothers, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom. 
what's Stephen's point here? I think it's twofold. The jealousy and sin of the revered patriarchs was a demonstration that they did not understand God's plan. When they rejected Joseph, they rejected God. Second, even though Israel missed it, even though Israel missed it, God is still faithful. If you know the story of Joseph, you know it's marvelous. You see the faithfulness of God despite Israel's sin. Joseph says in Genesis 50, verse 20, As for you, guys, you, you patriarchs, you, my brothers, you meant it for evil against me, but guess what? God meant it for good. God meant it for good. Throw me in a pit, sell me to slavery, then I'm in prison. You know what? All of that persecution, all that trial and suffering, God meant all that for good. Now, I could stop right now and spend the remainder of our time telling you about the connection between Joseph and Jesus. I'll just let you know the highlights. Jesus is also God's anointed. Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth, lived the perfect life. Jesus preached about the kingdom of God. By all accounts, Jesus was a great teacher. Even non-Christians and non-Jews were like, he's a great teacher. But because of jealousy, Jesus was rejected. However, the sin of others cannot thwart the plan of God. We see from Stephen's sermon the beginning of a bad pattern. Israel's constant rejection of God's anointed. After giving a historical download about Joseph, Stephen moves to Moses. (laughs) Now, Stephen was really walking into a hornet's nest by talking about Moses, right? Fine, Joseph, nice story, whatever. But Moses, like Joseph, I'm thinking through the lens of, of a Jew at the time, would be like, I don't know, minor league, right? Moses, major league. Greatest of all time. So why would Stephen even talk about Moses? Why go down that road? Stephen says Israel also rejected Moses. Moses was appointed by God to lead Israel out of Egypt and toward the promised land, right? Stephen points out this man God set as both ruler and redeemer, talking about Moses, by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. His point in mentioning that is God had chosen Moses to lead. Long story short, Moses did help Israel, but we see that Israel rejected Moses. Verse 35, he didn't reject him just once, but twice. The first time they rejected Moses was when Moses was in position of power in Egypt, and he defended an Israelite from being persecuted by an Egyptian. Basically, Moses wanted to protect his kin, and Moses wanted Israel to see the hand of God to save him from their persecutor. Instead, Moses does that. Instead, Israel ridiculed Moses and missed what God was doing. In the text in Acts 7, it literally says he was trying to show them salvation through God in that particular story. The second and more egregious rejection was at Mount Sinai. So after Moses led Israel out of slavery... Think all those plagues that came down on Pharaoh's land and on his house. You can think about like the parting of the Red Sea. 
God was clearly at work. Moses was leading. And then God eventually gives them the law, right? You remember what happened when Moses went up the mountain to receive the law? This story, every time I think about it, and it comes up in the New Testament, or you go back to Exodus and you read it, just, it just boggles my mind what took place. Moses goes up the mountain, and everyone's like, Where's he? when's he coming back? When's he coming back? And so they became impatient. They began to grumble. And eventually, Israel decided to devise their own way forward. Stephen reminds us here of what happened. Our fathers, this is Acts 7, our fathers refused to obey him, Moses, but thrust him aside. And this is interesting, right? We talk a lot about matters of the heart. And in their hearts, they returned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us out of the land of Egypt? They're even admitting the facts. We do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Like, you've got to be kidding me. Do the people of Israel even understand what they're doing? God had saved him like... An entire body of water was split (laughs) so that they could walk through. Like, we've got massive memory lapse here. What's going on? But because they could not wait, they turned back to worshiping idols. The way they created their idol, a golden calf, is they took all the gold from the people. Like, give me all your valuable possessions. We're going to melt it down and create a golden calf. And we're going to worship that. And to boot, Aaron, Moses' brother, not only was he in on the job, he was leading it. Once again, Stephen's point is that Israel missed what God was doing. They rejected Joseph. They rejected Moses. Both were acts of rejecting God. But Stephen isn't done. He has another point to make from their history. After speaking about Moses, he moves to King David and King Solomon. David wanted a temple built for God, and Solomon saw the project through. Not the worst idea in the world, right? Eh, wrong. Here's the problem. Instead of worshiping God, Israel worshiped their great big temple. Instead of realizing God was more significant than the temple, they restricted God to the temple. Stephen comments and quotes a familiar passage, Psalm 11. He says, he says in his sermon, Yet the Most High God does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Think about that. You all love the temple. You go to the temple every day. You seek God in the temple. You make sacrifices in the temple. Like this is, a, this is an affront to their way of life. And they quote Psalm 11. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all things? God 
made the universe. He breathed it into existence. Ultimately, what's a temple to God? Israel is missing what God is doing. They are missing God. I was thinking about Israel's um, constant mishaps, and this is really silly. I'm just going to go for it. With the game of darts. <laughs> like, how's he, how's he going to connect this? Well, let me tell you. Uh, you could, maybe maybe uh, if you're into uh, bow and arrow or whatever, you've got a target, right? And you have a, a center to shoot at. Uh, you have a target, and you try to throw the dart right in the center of the dartboard. Well, it's not that Israel wasn't hitting the dartboard, in my estimation. It was that they weren't even, they weren't even playing the same game. Time and again, they were missing what God is doing. Everything Stephen said in Acts 7, verses 1 through verse 50, can be summed up in verses 51 and 52. You stiff-necked people. Uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They're stiff-necked, meaning stubborn and hard-hearted. Stephen is saying that his persecutors are no different than those who went before them. They resisted the Holy Spirit. They didn't just miss what God was doing, which is the way I've been saying it thus far. They resisted what God was doing. I think Stephen's kind of upping his rhetoric here. At the end of the sermon, he says, And they killed the one who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. So John the Baptist came to prepare the way of the Lord. He preached a message of repentance. He was rejected by the religious leaders and eventually murdered. The righteous one came. Jesus came. He was betrayed and murdered. The tradition of rejection culminates with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That's what we see. This tradition of rejection culminates with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So before looking at the final words of Stephen, the final words of his sermon, there's some more words he's going to say. What are we to make of his sermon, right? How can we apply Stephen's exhortation. That's important here. We want to know what God says in his word. We also want to think well about how to apply his word. First, and it's a simple application with profound implications, if you are rejecting and resisting God, stop. Stop. I mean, I would say this in any room that I'm in if I'm preaching this sermon. If you're not a Christian, you are rejecting God. If you're not a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are resisting God. Stop. Instead, receive what the prophet said. Repent of your sin. Repent by turning away from your sin and toward Jesus. If you do so, listen to these precious truths. Jesus awaits you with open 
arms. His arms are wide open. Jesus awaits you offering forgiveness of your sins. Jesus awaits you offering the freedom you've never experienced. Jesus awaits you with hope, with mercy, with grace. Jesus awaits you with love more, profo- more profound and palpable than a love you have ever known. Jesus awaits you offering eternal life. The message of Acts 7 was to the Jewish leaders, yes, but it is actually a message for the entire world. It was because of the sinless life, atoning death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that Stephen was able to preach to his persecutors. Stephen knew that someone better awaited him. So that's, that's one point of application. If you don't know Christ, he might be drawing you to himself right now. Stop rejecting him. Repent and pray for God's mercy. Here's another application point, which is really for Christians. Here's how you avoid becoming religious like the Jews we read about in Acts. Here's how you don't miss what they missed when they read their Bible. Ready? You need to realize that going to church doesn't save you. Reading your Bible doesn't save you. Growing up in a Christian home doesn't save you. Doing good deeds doesn't save you. Parents, you can't save your child so don't act like their Messiah. Going to seminary can't save you. Being a pastor doesn't save you. Only repentance from sin and faith in the atoning death of Jesus Christ saves a person. And oh, how we try to muck that up, right? We got a bunch of add-ons. If you're gonna add a bunch of add-ons, well, you'll end up being like the religious Jews in Acts seven. So while Stephen's message is for the entire world, it is also for every churchgoer who could be tempted to become like the religious Jews. Let's not miss Stephen's message and how it would have been received by his hearers. Verse 54. And when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. What imagery there, right? The word enraged in verse 54 was used in Acts 5, verse 33, to describe the Jewish leaders right before they beat Peter and the apostles. Again, we see Religious leaders infuriated because of the words of Stephen. Their anger rose so much, they were like grinding their teeth. Like, what does that even like? How do you get so upset and angry? You're just, all my feelings would come out, right? In a remarkable scene, we read in verse 55 that Stephen gazed into heaven and saw the Son of Man standing, not sitting but standing at the right hand of God. Stephen's Savior was ready to receive him. We we know the rest of the story. Stephen was the first Christian martyr. These words from, again, back to Bonhoeffer, would have ring true for Stephen. So heaven is torn above us, humans, and the joyful message of God's salvation in Jesus Christ rings out from heaven to earth as a cry of joy. I believe, and in believing, I receive Christ. I have everything I live before God.
But right before he died, Stephen uttered several final words. He had his sermon, and they took him out of the city, and they stoned him. He had a few more things he wanted to say. Read these last words from Stephen's life with a sober mind and a soft heart. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. He died. First, Stephen was a man ready to die, just as Jesus was prepared to die when he said on the cross to his father, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You know, may we live in such a way where we are ready to die well. May we grow in our faith so that when death is knocking at the door, we know we are close to eternal life with Jesus. Second point I want you to see from Stephen's last words is the compassion he had for the people who were killing him. He pleads with Jesus to not hold the sin of murder against his persecutors. And here, my friends, we see the power of the gospel working in Stephen. It is easy to make connections between the gospel and the signs and wonders performed by Stephen, right? It's easy to see the gospel on display as he preaches. But I want to submit to you that these final words are the most profound gospel evidence in Stephen's life. These words are the closest we can get to understanding how the gospel was affecting this man. These last words show us the true and lasting power of the gospel. Stephen did not wish for his persecutors to be crushed. Stephen did not seek Jesus for revenge. Stephen pleads with Jesus to show his persecutors mercy. Yes, Stephen wanted his persecutors to know Jesus. May we live and die with the same compassion and love. Right? There's the takeaway. May we live in that way. May we always be ready to plead to God for the forgiveness of our persecutors. May our last words be seasoned with gospel truth, with the eyes of our heart focused on Christ. Can you honestly say where you sit right now that if you lived the life Stephen lived and died the way he died, that you could say those words? I mean, I could put that question to myself. Could I say that? I know I want to say that. And I want whatever it needs to take to come to that point. Because that's 
what it means to live like Christ. I have one final thought regarding the, spe- the speech, the sermon given by Stephen, um, and then his life and death. You could read this passage and ask, what is Stephen accomplish- accomplishing by preaching in such a for- forceful way, right? Like he kind of took it to him. <laughs> Basically said, you're wrong about this, you're wrong about that, you're wrong about this, you're wrong about that. No one likes to be told they're wrong. Other than his death, what did he accomplish? I'll tell you what. You never know how God can use spoken gospel truths to begin to move the needle in someone's life. You never know. Look at verse 58. I don't got it on the screen, but look at verse 58. You see who was there? Do you see who was present at his death? Do you know who witnessed Stephen pleading with Jesus to forgive his persecutors? Saul. Saul, a persecutor of Christians. The same Saul who would be saved by God, become the Apostle Paul and the human author of over a quarter of our New Testament. You never know how God will use a spoken gospel truth, namely Stephen's plea that God would have mercy on his persecutors. You never know how God will use that in someone else's life. Now, back to my opening question. What would you say, what will you say right before you die? Whatever it is you say, may your words reflect a gospel-centered life. May your words be gracious to all and glorifying to God. Let's pray.